Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined this week from where else but Portland, Oregon, by Dr. Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me again, fellas. You're our regular correspondent from Trump's America, but not for much longer. I was just thinking before we started talking how I remember very vividly a conversation that the three of us had. I think it was on the, it was either just after the election or around when he was inaugurated. So we've been talking about it the whole time. Yeah, but not for much longer. Although, what do you reckon? (laughs) Well, I mean, look, at that level of things, at the level of state power, it seems like pretty much every ally that Trump could have imagined counting on has cut bait on him. And he seems pretty friendless at the moment. There's all kinds of indications of that from, I believe, Pat Robertson, the television evangelist today, said that Trump was living in a parallel universe and he needed to move on and he was preparing for a Biden administration. You've had a whole bunch of state level parties and stuff throughout this ludicrous process of him trying to challenge the result one by one, kind of abandoning him, even pushing back on claims that his lawyers and allies were making about the validity of the count in states like Georgia. And also, I mean, I think a big tell was that Mike Pence went and got himself a vaccination and on, on live TV as if to sort of dismiss some of the conspiracy theorizing that Trump's done about this disease, this epidemic throughout the course that it's taken. So, I mean, at that level, I think there's no doubt that he gave it a red hot go at, at sort of, you know, overturning or at least complicating the election result. But he found few supporters and, and I think that he probably thought he'd made some kind of deal with the, the Supreme Court appointment, but he it turned out that he hadn't, or not the one that he had wanted to make. And the, the Supreme Court, basically, the version of this election disputation that got to the Supreme Court, they just flatly refused to even hear. So he's looking very isolated. And in retrospect, I think I was thinking about, thinking back over the last year, and I think there were some very bad moments throughout the summer, especially here in Portland, where you had federal agents of indeterminate employment or assignment in some cases with no real indications on the uniforms who they were actually working for. But you had federal agents in Portland carrying out a kind of localised crackdown. But I think in retrospect, even at the time, back in June, I think you'll remember that he cleared out Lafayette Square. He had some goons clear out Lafayette Square in front of the White House so that he could walk across and and do a photo op at the church across the square. And from that moment, he started to try to say that there should be a kind of military 
crackdown in the streets all over the United States, that the, the army was going to go in. And at that point, at, at, at one point in June, the Joint Chiefs of Staff just kind of hosed that down and said that's not going to happen. And I, I think even back then, over the course of this year, I, I think due to his handling of the pandemic and, and also due to his handling of that wave of protest, he became progressively more isolated. And maybe if the election was a little closer, things would have been a little different. But in the end, it wasn't. And, and so he's going to have to pack his bag. His supporters are another matter. But at that level of state power, I, I think state, state power is going to be relatively peacefully transferred to the president-elect in January. So what do you expect to happen on uh, January 20? Do you think the Donald will attend? Oh, I mean, from what we know about him, you'd have to say that there's a good chance that he won't. Although it's also one last chance to sort of preen in the vicinity of the White House. I mean, I've had a number of people suggest to me that perhaps he'll go to Mar-a-Lago for Christmas and he'll just never come back. And and that's that's a possibility. He's still not publicly accepting that he's lost. He's still making all kinds of claims about Joe Biden and even Biden's family and pushing this idea that the election was rigged. It seems to me that the kind of scale of the desertion of him is, is indicative to me that not only are sort of right-wing elites, whether they be in the media or various religious institutions or in politics. It's not just the elites that are abandoning him. It's, it, I, I have to think that they have a sense that the, the part of the Republican base that thinks, still thinks the election was stolen is not huge. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably still tens of millions of people. Don't get me wrong, but there's kind of a bet here that's being made, I think, that by some elites and conservative elites anyway, that this is going to taper off and they'll be able to rally the base around somebody else eventually. With that said, I mean, Ted Cruz, who who ran against Trump in the, in the 2015, 2016 primaries and who Trump at that time said his wife was ugly and that his father maybe had been involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. <laughs> He was kind of one of the ones who was was rallying around Trump. And that, I mean, there was that amicus brief of, of Republican politicians all over the country who signed on to that attempted Supreme Court move to sort of invalidate parts of the election result. And Ted, Ted Cruz was leading the charge there. And, and there are obviously people who think that they would quite like to transfer the loyalty of Trump's hardcore base to themselves. And and there's an opportunity there, obviously. But I guess it remains to be seen if if that I I don't know what what the House style is on Yenar Passarana. If we're if we're calling the Trump movement up fascist or proto-fascist or whatever. <laughs> but that movement, I don't know if it can be galvanized in the same way by somebody who isn't Trump. I think I think that's a that's an open question. People talk about politicians like Josh Hawley as having very similar politics, if not more pernicious politics than than Trump. But he doesn't seem to be the kind of charismatic figure that, that would that would galvanize that movement in the same way. I don't know. It's not been a good year for Ted Cruz. First, he loses this case, and now they've just uh, cracked his Zodiac cipher. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it was a pretty clever code that he came up with. But um, yeah, he was kind of playing with that at one point. You know, uh, do you remember that? Like he was kind of hinting that he was the Zodiac killer on his Twitter account. Hilarious stuff. Bit weird to lean into when you are from a you know family of famous murderers. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be very difficult for the Republicans, even if they decided upon it, to dislodge Trump should he elect to stay. 
while he's in the Republican camp, there just doesn't seem to be any serious challenge to his domination. Do you mean stay in the White House or stay around in no, politics? No, stay in politics and stay aligned to the Republicans. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think he's he's going to go anywhere. And the thing is that I cannot imagine that he won't be involved in some kind of venture, some kind of media venture. He needs the money for one thing. And it's it's just a kind of obvious move for him to make. At that point, I mean, he's got access to grind with all kinds of Republicans now as well. Well, exactly. Can, They've turned on him. Right. They're so all big he, state. He can still mobilise that base in various ways, perhaps. Again, it remains to be seen. I mean, if he's out of power and he's a loser, I mean, I don't. I find it very hard to predict how that's all going to shake out. But let's presume that he he does retain the loyalty of of that movement that leapfrogged with him over the last half decade to this position of incredible prominence and dominance, as you say, of conservative politics. Presuming that they stick with him, presuming that he does go off and do some kind of media venture, I mean, he's going to be coming after the Republican Party, he's going to be coming after Fox News. It it could potentially be very disruptive. I mean, we've already seen some signs of that in the difficulties that they're having the Republicans are having in Georgia in terms of getting all their ducks in a row and getting people to show up and vote for these runoff. There's two runoff elections for the Senate that are happening in Georgia in January. They've got a peculiar kind of system for electing their senators. If there's not a clear kind of majority result, there's a runoff. And the Senate, the control of the Senate is in balance in these runoff elections. And the Trump people are kind of not helping there at all. There's been in the media, you know, we've seen video of people saying things like, what's the point in turning up to vote? The elections are all rigged. Or I'm not going to show up to vote for... Because the Georgia... Republican Party effectively kind of signed off on the the results in that state, which where Trump lost somewhat unexpectedly. Or, well, you know, people thought it was competitive, but he really didn't need to lose Georgia. And so you've got the Republican base or the Trumpist part of the Republican base balking at actually showing up and voting for Republicans. So you can easily imagine a set of circumstances where all kinds of people in the Republican Party and conservative media are wishing Donald Trump dead <laughs> in, a, in a year or two. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because I think enough was done during the last half decade to mean that there is a sort of Trumpist movement, a, a good chunk of which has some sort of esoteric beliefs with Trump at the centre of them, which is meaningfully distinct from even the relatively kind of radicalised conservative base that was around in the Bush years and and during the Tea Party. Like, there's something different about these Trump people that is, I mean, again, I'm raising this question, but that it is, it at least rhymes with fascism. It's got some some characteristics of, of fascism. And, and now that Trump's lost, maybe we'll see some esoteric Trumpism, you know, as people try to cope with the, what's happened. But I don't know. I mean, there's a big debate at the moment in the posher end of, of the left-wing press here, you know, in the nation and what have you, the American prospect where people are led by Corey Robin, who's a historian, I guess he's at City University of New York, and he's sort of like some saying, well, Trump wasn't a fascist. And and the grounds seem to be that Trump wasn't particularly successful in wielding state power. And I, I personally, I don't think that's the criterion. Robert, Robert O. Paxton talks about the stages of fascism. And you can kind of, I think Trump probably got to about 3.5. <laughs> that's my view anyway, that there, there is something 
deeply pernicious and metastatic and cultish and now esoteric about Trumpism that, that really does rhyme, as I say, with some of the interwar fascist movements. But see, I think this is something that you guys will have an opinion on as well. Well, look, if the ultranationalism isn't palingenetic, I don't want to hear about it. That's what I'd say to that question. Well, I mean, in the relevant literature on fascism and political extremism, one of the distinctions that's often made is between or between the far right and the extreme right is the extreme right is characterised by its rejection of democracy. And if you take as evidence the fact that Trump has uh, rejected the results of the election, which seems to be however you want to, whether it's a fully-fledged democracy or otherwise, that's what the results seem to indicate. There was a vote. A majority of people voted for his opponent. He's refused to accept that result. And that's often understood as being like a, a key signpost for a fascist doctrine where they, they reject democracy. And it just so happens that he's rejected it in this instance because it's produced the wrong result. But I don't get the feeling that he's uh, you know, fully invested in concepts of popular rule. or you know. And in terms of his uh, success, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the things I think about Trump is he's a very stable brain genius. And so in that sense... If he's in charge and there are some failings on his part or is on, on the part of his regime, I think that's less attributable to some failure to fully subscribe to a fascist doctrine as opposed to his own inability and uh, incompetence. So I don't know if that's an especially good grounds to argue that Trump and Trumpism is not fascist. Also, it's a movement in the process of development. So, I, And it seems to be the case that if you read what he's been saying, well, throughout his kind of political career, but more recently, his pronouncements have become increasingly deranged and increasingly in conformity with fascist doctrine. And this is, a, this is, this is coming out at the moment at which he's losing. And there's some sense in which, I don't know which, you know, coach or commentator said, you reveal your true character in these circumstances. So I don't know. I'd have to, I mean, I, I enjoyed reading Robin's book on the reactionary mind. I thought that was very interesting, but I don't know if I would yeah. agree with him. Yeah. I think probably what's at stake in this argument, and I should just go ahead and, and write something for m myself because it's it's obvious it's clearly bothering me but i think what's at stake in this argument is whether or not people were right in 2016 to say well hillary clinton is such a corrupt neoliberal warmonger that actually should you bother voting and you know that's fine that's a question that, that's a that's an argument that was worth having at the time and but maybe there's no difference and whether people were right in that recommendation given given how trump kind of turned out. And it seems to me that I, I've got absolutely no brief for the Clintons, good, good Lord, but it seems to me that the Trump regime was absolutely catastrophic. I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> we're still knee-deep in that catastrophe, well, at, at best knee-deep in that catastrophe right now. And not only that, but I mean, I agree with, with, with what you're saying about the election. Another example is a, a really frank attempt to kind of instigate a military crackdown on dissent and protest in the summer, an attempt to impose an unprecedentedly harsh, although <laughs> only in the American context, it was actually probably pretty similar to, you know, Australia's treatment of refugees and Australia's overall immigration system in some ways, what he was trying to introduce. But an unprecedentedly harsh immigration and refugee policy, which involved detention in camps at the border and pretty brutal forms of enforcement from ICE. The encouragement of, I, I, I think the Proud Boys, I mean, I think Gavin McGuinness is switched on enough 
where I can say that I, I feel like the Proud Boys are a self-conscious attempt to kind of create a shirt movement, whether or not he thinks it's a big joke or whether or not what, whatever he, whatever his intentions were. I think that's what the effort he was making. And, you know, Trump encouraged the Proud Boys throughout, especially this year. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, people have this kind of view that a there's a kind of ideological checklist where you can you can kind of compare Trump and Trumpism to interwar fascism and and you know tick boxes and but interwar fascism was also opportunistic and somewhat amorphous at times and not that wedded to ideological principles so much as it was to power and also tremendously irrational and incompetent at times. Um, I don't know where that idea that interwar fascism was this ruthlessly ruthlessly efficient machine of government comes from because, you know, <laughs> I don't think it always was. But clearly it wasn't. Trumpism did not make it to the point where it was the basis of a totalitarian state, right? Like that's that's the thing. To some extent, however close we may have come, the kind of institutions of, of, of the, the state the state institutions in the United States basically did wind up constraining some of what he wanted to do. At what cost, we don't yet know, I don't think. But he was always trying to push beyond the limits of liberal democracy. He was always chafing at those limits. And the other thing I'd say about all of this is that, you know, Nazism is always the model to, in, in Germany. Nazi Germany is always the, the thing that people immediately think of. And so a, a spe- specific, extremely virulent racial doctrines, for example. But like M- Mussolini's Italy, I mean, really, the national enemy there wasn't the Jews, it was the left. And the extent to which the left was demonized by Trump and his movement is, I, I can't remember anything like it. Even during the Bush years, there wasn't really anything like it. And, you know, in, in, in the coronavirus example, we can just see a total sort of disregard for human life when weighed against his kind of political imperatives uh, to stay in power. And the kind of criminality as well, which is, go back to Horkheimer and the, the racket theory of fa- fascism. I mean, it, there, there's just so much that it seems to me, is close enough that we really need to address this as a near miss, not as a kind of category error in some kind of debate that's essentially idle. Like, I, I think this was a near miss. I, I think that I'm surprised that 2020 has ended in the way that it has. It's ter- it's all terrible. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, I imagine it being much, much worse. And I, I think I those of us who did imagine it being turning out much worse had ample grounds for doing so. I mean, because Trump and his movement and his regime have, had no self-restraint whatsoever. Any restraints that they encountered were imposed on, on them from, from without. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Jason Wilson about Trump. Jason, you mentioned before we started a recording that you've been inside your house for the last nine to ten months, except for one time when you went out to drive into a bushfire, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to do. <laughs> uh, so I imagine you've been watching a lot of uh, Fox and OAN over the year. How has that been? Well, you know, I wrote something that got published, I think, yesterday as we talk about about Sky News Australia. And that's, this is just a sort of a side note, but I would say that Sky News Australia, I would compare them more with OANN than Fox News at this point. And so OANN, there's another one. Wow. What's it called? NTD, another cable network that's really similar to OANN. So like full on conspiracy theory kind of stuff, pro Trump stuff, just 
total fabrication a lot of the time or just a disregard for the truth. Yeah, I, I think that over the last year on the media side, it's almost getting to this point where Fox News is starting to look sober and responsible by comparison to, you know, the media outlets that have arisen in tandem with that sort of social and political movement we've been talking about. Newsmax today had to apologise. Newsmax is another conservative cable outlet, and they had to apologise today for broadcasting conspiracy theories involving voting machines uh, manufactured by a company called Dominion, which are totally baseless. And it seems like they've probably gotten some legal threats and they've had to prostrate themselves publicly in order to sort of head that stuff off. But it's only by comparison. Fox has gotten worse, I would say, as well, like appreciably worse. And I think... Tucker Carlson's, I, I have no idea what is in Tucker Carlson's heart, but his broadcast is white nationalism, plain and simple, for several nights a week. And when it's not that, it's just hitting out in the most demonizing way at the, the perceived political opponents of, of Trumpism. And actually, Tucker is someone who I could see in politics doing, maybe doing okay as 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 the figurehead of, of a kind of reconstituted Trumpism. But that's another story. Yeah, Fox News has gotten worse. I mean, I think Laura Ingram is, is probably as bad as Tucker. There is still, though, this kind of ballast. So they still, for their advertisers, and, and to some, uh, to a limited extent, to, for, for the purposes of whatever like kind of regulatory controls still exist on American broadcasting, they kind of have to do some straight stuff and... So, you know, Chris Wallace comes on on a Sunday morning and he's kind of like a centrist sort of figure and was subject to probably, I imagine, death threats <laughs> and everything up to that as a result of kind of taking on Trump and, and other people close to him on his program. So, so, so Fox still has this kind of ballast, which it's still kind of residually a news channel that's kind of anchored to some kind of sense of public interest journalism, or, or at least has to go through those motions now and again. I mean, these newer channels are just not <laughs> they're not they're not encumbered in that way and you know i th i think sky after dark is pretty similar i mean i i was kind of like i was researching that article and, and i'm not tuning into sky after dark every day and so i watched a bunch of stuff from the last few months and like i, I wrote about this interview that alan jones did with maurice newman who used to be i guess the chairman of the board of the abc who was just talking about the great reset and all of these other kind of conspiracy-minded, all of this other conspiracy-minded stuff on Alan Jones's show. And obviously, Alan Jones isn't challenging him on any of that. And it's just unmediated. It's kind of like, I don't know, I'm not going to say it's quite InfoWars tier, but like, I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know what the gradations are anymore. It was conspiracy theory. I mean, they've had Lauren Southern is now listed as a kind of permanent contributor on Sky News Australia. Like she's, I guess she's on the payroll or at least on some kind of contract. Jason, what's the issue with that? <laughs> well, I mean, she's a white nationalist. So is Katie Hopkins. And my piece relied pretty extensively on a piece of journalism that Cameron Wilson did for Business Insider Australia this year, where he pointed out that they're kind of digital first now. I mean, people say, yeah, their, their ratings are crap. And that's true, like domestically, terrestrially, whatever. But they're putting this stuff on YouTube, and, and I think they've got the biggest YouTube following of any Australian news outlet now, and it's all kind of international. So people like Southern and Hopkins, who are untouchable in US media, I mean, even for Fox News. Fox News, I don't imagine, would have Lauren Southern on. I mean, she's just too radioactive. 
but for Sky News Australia, she's an asset. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that that, that right-wing media ecology here is quite bad, but it's also open to especially Anglophone media outlets in other countries like Australia, and, and Sky is really taking advantage of that. And, you know, they're probably making a bunch of money out of it because there are still Lauren Southern fans out there. There are lots of conspiracy-minded far-right Trumpist types out there, and, and they're absolutely catering to that. Yeah, I remember looking at conspiracy groups on Facebook earlier in the year and just the sheer popularity of stuff from Sky News, but especially Alan Jones, they loved him. So you'd be in these QAnon groups and they're like, you know, there's conspiracies of uh, pedophile elites in politics and the media, you know, there's children in the tunnels. Oh, and here's Alan Jones talking about the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny that he should show up in, in groups that are concerned with, with pedophile conspiracy theories. But anyway, he, yeah, he's huge online. He's is absolutely a promoter of conspiracy theories. And, and it seems to me it's completely amoral. I mean, I, I don't reckon he believes this stuff, but it, it's just like, I, I don't know, This is, it's just a shtick for him. So, uh, But I, again, I can't see into his heart, but like, I don't think that his radio show was quite like this. I think that this is a job that he's doing for Sky and they're just being guided by traffic. And so it's all pretty grubby and reprehensible from my point of view. And I think it's disgraceful that, you know, they picked up Lauren Southern as someone that, that, that they're prepared to sort of put under the masthead, not just have as a kind of controversial guest, but to sort of basically endorse as, as an on-air contributor. I think that's a real problem and there's not really, there doesn't seem to be an immediate regulatory solution because ACMA has farmed out regulation of cable news to an industry body that's stacked with Sky News blokes. So... It's the perfect crime. It's a really odd situation. Also, they're broadcasting, as I understand it, free to air to regional in regional Australia, right? So that's 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 a real worry <laughs> because I mean I feel like it's not just kind of like Cam, you're a um, a very keen sort of student of these conspiracy groups. I, I mean, I feel like it's the hard stuff on on Sky, right? They're, like they're not just flirting with it. Yeah, no, they're getting right into it. I think. I mean, one thing I thought was kind of telling was Southern was intended to be the, the star speaker at CPAC Australia. And then at some point, for reasons which remain somewhat obscure, she was dropped from the program, which I read as being based on uh, the consideration that she may be, she might bring CPAC into disrepute were she to appear. And yet at the same time, she's uh, obviously not only acceptable, but celebrated on Sky. So there's a certain that suggests there's a, still a certain tension between the media and political wings of um, reactionary politics in Australia. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and I think that yeah, there, there's this structural oddity that means that because Sky is so little watched, certainly you know by the opinion makers of metropolitan Australia, you know no no one's watching Sky After Dark, and and if I had the choice, I wouldn't I wouldn't watch it either so it's not really registering in australia but it's it's kind of basically outward facing so there's they're sort of doing stuff that i imagine is probably not saleable in australian retail politics even by conservatives even though i would never suggest that australian politics doesn't have its 
Australian conservative politics doesn't have its fair share of, of, of racism and, you know, conspiracy mongering and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it, you know, this is not the kind of politics that Scott Morrison is going to approach the electorate with, right? It's kind of outside the, the main lines of conservative discourse in Australia. But it's just been piped out to this kind of international audience of, yeah, that, that's sort of, I don't know, esoteric Trumpist <laughs> audience. And it seems to be doing that really successfully. It's just a very odd kind of situation. And I don't imagine that anyone who has the capacity to do anything about it is terribly interested in doing so. Well, on that cheerful note, Jason, we'll have to leave it there for the radio, but we will have a few more questions on the podcast version of this show at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnarpasaran or on Apple or Spotify or all of those places. Thanks for joining us, Jason, and thanks for joining us throughout the year. Oh, look, it's always great to chat, guys, so thank you. Well, Andy, this is our last show for the year. We're going to take a few weeks off, and then we'll be back uh, in early Jan. Yes, uh, a brief break, but we'll come back refreshed next year. Thanks for uh, listening during the, the course of 2022. Thank you. See you later. Well, I mean, we're reflecting on 2020, right? And we've referred to Trump and the Trumpist movement. How do you think the far right, Jason, has fared outside the United States and Australia? Because although I know your focus has been on US politics, there's been, I guess, troubling signs from across the globe during the course of this year. Yeah, I so... I'm 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 wondering what if if I had to give an overall like global assessment it it seems to me that outside those places like say Hungary or you know Poland to an extent where they have ma- managed to kind of consolidate state power and their political movements you know so they're they're kind of taking a step closer to you know a kind of authoritarian one party state kind of a deal so outside of those places, like in Western Europe and North America, I feel like at the electoral level, they're kind of not going so well. I mean, I think that wave also, you know, in, in the Western Hemisphere, in, in Brazil, I'm thinking Brazil as well. Like it seems like Bolsonaro's foundering, Trump's on his way out, the Tories in Britain who took on a lot of populist baggage, Boris Johnson, that that project doesn't seem to be going so well either. And in, in all three of those cases, coronavirus has kind of played a part because they just couldn't seem to manage that competently or even consistently. And, you know, I, I don't feel like the populist parties in, in, you know, France and the right-wing populist parties in France and the Netherlands and what have you, I just don't, I don't, feel like there's a lot of momentum there. I mean, they're still around, obviously, and one shouldn't count one's chickens, but I feel like a little bit of the the head of steam that they had built up electorally in 2015, 2016 has kind of dissipated. But then outside electoral politics, I think we're probably entering this danger zone where they're going to have these alienated followers who have conspiracy-minded beliefs about why they're not succeeding and have a kind of, have internalised an extremely Manichaean sort of view of, of, of politics and the societies they live in and see a lot of their neighbours as, as sort of satanic enemies. And, yeah, I, I guess I'm worried at the moment. And, and you know, like, like you say, I'm, I'm here in the US, so my thinking is kind of centred here. And so just today, a bunch of guys 
busted up, up the door of the the Oregon State Capitol in Salem, which is half an hour down the road from me. And they got stuck into it with the cops. And one guy got arrested after he unloaded a can of bear spray on, on an Oregon State trooper. And yeah, and I, I think that's, I mean, Matthew Lyons makes that great distinction between far-right movements that are system loyal. And I think... He, he started using that in, in the context of the Proud Boys, thinking about the Proud Boys, uh, you know, distinguishing them from the more insurrectionary extremist, you know, far right. So, you know, your accelerationists and what have you is what people might think, you know, Adam Waffen Division or the base is what people might think of these days. And I just wonder if some of those system loyal movements in the face of Trump's defeat will become less system loyal. And so as far as I know, the guys who were involved in that caper today, a lot of them are sort of have been Proud Boys or associated with the Proud Boys and are now sort of involved in slightly fringier things, but still patriot branded sort of things. And I wonder if now Trump's gone, the systems change. And so I wonder if there's going to be more insurrectionary stuff going on. And then you've always got the chance of a McVeigh or a Patrick Crucius or whatever, you know, like someone who decides to take matters into their own hands and do something uh, incredibly destructive. So I guess that's what I'm worried about now, although it's just sort of hard to tell. I mean, they're, they're clearly very demoralized by what's happened, by Trump's loss. I mean, a lot of these folks really, and I think Trump himself, to an extent, really thought he was going to win, you know, really thought the polls are cucked or whatever, and it, it would come good and Trump would be reelected and then they'd get to, they'd get to taunt the libs again. And that it didn't, it didn't turn out that way. And we're still, as we were discussing earlier, uh, if they're looking around for culprits, some of the culprits are going to be Republicans. So it's a potentially very, alienating and radicalizing kind of thing for some people. So I do imagine that. I do imagine that these street movements are going to get smaller and get reduced to the kind of harder core elements. And and some of those folks might, as I said, decide to do something really dangerous. And look, if you're not a felon in the United States, or even if you are, <laughs> but if you're not a felon, you can walk into a gun shop and buy an AR-15 tomorrow, and you can buy certain kinds of explosives pretty easily as well and legally. And if you're creative, you can make a big bomb out of some pretty uh, readily available ingredients. So yeah, I, I, I'm worried about I'm worried about that. That that would be my concern at the moment, and I don't think we're out of the woods there yet. I mean, the other thing is, I suppose that. How to put this? I, and I think this is true of Australia as well, that, you know, the kind of stuff that Cam looks at in his other podcasts, you know, conspiracy theories and, and Facebook groups that are promoting this stuff. I mean, that's just one example. And the Trump movement is another. I, I just feel like we still have those conditions in place where people have become sort of permanently maybe radicalized over the last few years and... It's just possible for them to continue to marinate in the forums in which they were radicalized. And I think people can choose to keep doing that for as long as they want because, you know, the social media, well, look, there's any number of now alt, alt tech outfits out there who are promising unlimited free speech and they're user friendly enough. But, you know, even Facebook is not completely serious about trying to optimize their platform for the social for, for the for the greater good they'll still let these movements do stuff on their platform as long as it's not a kind of pr problem for them twitter's a little better but uh they've got a different 
user base whose sensibilities they have to cater to. So, yeah, I, ju- I just, I don't know. I mean, I imagine that in the United States there are 20, 30 million people who are just maybe who are just completely not completely adrift from a sort of minimal contact with the empirical realities of what's going on in the society at the moment. And they're just completely wedded to conspiratorial explanations of everything that goes on and wedded to a worldview which is completely demonizing of their perceived enemies. So, which is more than half of the the people in the society that they live in. So I don't know how you resolve that. I mean, I I don't know. I'd be curious to to know what you guys think, whether that's too dark a a picture of what's happening or I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm curious. Um, One thing I think is that whereas from the end of the Second World War through until, I guess, the late 1980s, early 1990s, you know, an era commonly referred to as the Cold War, there was a very obvious enemy, which was communism. And anti-communism was the framework around which nationalists and others organised. And with the collapse of communism, figures like Soros and others have emerged to occupy that space. But perhaps what's also fueling the kinds of more esoteric conspiracy theories is the, I mean, and also China, I guess, has kind of emerged as a replacement in terms of occupying the political imagination of ultranationalists in Australia and the United States and elsewhere. But that seems to be, it seems to be in the current era, there's greater flexibility in terms of the kinds of thinking that can be engaged in. And I mean, I do think that the, you know, there's a deep kind of well or reservoir of sentiment that may or may not be politically activated at any time, but remains a potential source of political mobilisation. And that's what I kind of, that's how the prism through which I view something like Reclaim Australia, uh, which emerged in 2015, that was trading upon many years of anti-Muslim rhetoric. And here was an opportunity for uh, the thousands who'd been um, subscribed to this particular thesis about the clash of civilizations and so on and so forth, a moment for them to leave their keyboards and come onto the streets. And one thing I noticed about many of the people engaged in that relatively small movement was you had a core of ideologues, uh, religious and secular, and then you had a much larger audience that had no concrete political bearings in terms of being, they didn't have the ideological convictions and it seemed like that what they were, they were a market essentially. And it does seem to be the case that social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter has been employed or utilised by those who want to gain access to those markets in a way that perhaps wasn't as possible previously and had previously, the gatekeepers had previously been in the dominant institutions, the media and so forth. And I guess in an environment which, as you note, um, in Australia, Sky News has emerged as a kind of uh, ideological lodestar for these people and these movements, it's even more arguably unhinged than the anti-communist publications of years past. And and also, despite its relatively limited you know, viewing figures, it thrives on social media. That's the real market. And what Lauren Southern brought to the table was, you know, she's someone who already has an established following, uh, you know, a, a small cult has developed around her and her views. 
that was one of the things that, apart from her, you know, uh, youth and so on, that was one of the things that she brought to Sky. But really the game has moved away from viewing figures on a cable news show to, you know, what kind of social impact and what kind of audience can be obtained through uh, sites like Facebook. And those have, Facebook is not going to collapse anytime soon. And the alt tech that's emerged just gives more vigorous expression to those sorts of reactionary politics. And outside of that, I mean, there are some stumbling attempts to develop some kind of alternative platforms which aren't so, um, you know, aren't geared towards catering to that audience, but they're quite small. And at the same time, whether you look at the Democrats in the United States or Labor in Australia, there's a sense in which those parties as institutions have been hollowed out. They're no longer able to obtain, rightly or wrongly, real political support. In other words, they're vulnerable. And so they're vulnerable to challenges and their response is not to, we haven't had an Australian equivalent, but the rejection of Sanders and some form of social democratic politics, I think in the longer term doesn't bode well for the future of the Democrats because it seems to be the case, or at least this is what I think, you need to present to an audience or that audience some kind of alternative that's not just a rhetorical one but is invested in some kind of alternative political vision policy program and that's still uh, largely absent and so yeah I'm not necessarily I mean I just I should say I just read a report into the far left and the far right on Facebook and one of the things apart from anything else I noted was that the sheer volume of uh, rhetoric that's produced by the right according to this study and I, I think it's probably confirmed by broader studies vastly outweighs that uh, being produced by left or progressive voices. And it's, it's really just a matter of drowning out even kind of what I'd consider more centrist social democratic approaches, which at least have the virtue of having com- some correspondence to reality. And that, that also, yeah, there's this entire alternate universe has been created. And I don't see any reason to think that that won't persist beyond January 20. I, don't, I see no reason why it should. You know, we interviewed uh, someone about Cusser Pound the other week, and if, if you read the book, uh, one of the things that the authors state is in terms of understanding the situation of the far right and, and fascist movements, possibly too much energy has been invested into examining uh, the electoral domain and uh, concentrating upon electoral results. And one of the things or one of the themes that is uh, found in evidence throughout the book is uh, scholars of fascism and the far right, there's been a relative absence of examining the relationships between uh, electoral politics and social movements. And if you, in their case, you know, studying Cusser Pound, it's been relatively successful and it's dabbled in electoral politics, but really it's about creating a political and social infrastructure for a political and social movement, which is only doesn't depend upon success within the electoral arena in order to achieve its goals. And I think that's the other thing to bear in mind when looking at, you know, the relative failure of various far-right electoral projects. Those are important, but it's also important to focus upon cultural impact of those campaigns, the ways in which they can be harnessed to, to sustain social movements, which are have longer-term goals and attain their success, not simply at the ballot box, but in, in establishing other forms of 
political and social power. And I think in the United States, I think the question that occurs to me in the context of discussions with the Proud Boys is, yes, of course, if daddy's in office, the system works. If daddy's out of office, the system's broken. So the kinds of attachments to democratic theory and practice are pretty tenuous and generally revolve around the extent to which they can be made to work for advancing their politics. So doesn't it all surprise me if, or wouldn't, if Proud Boys and related groups, if, if what they see going on in you know, the Senate or the House or the presidency is failure, of course they're going to abandon any even lip service to some notion of democratic politics. And that doesn't, you know, that, that's part of the... What I don't, what I understand to be the fascist political dynamic. Yeah, and then their primary attachment is to violence as a political tactic. I think. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I mean, just as you were talking, I mean, I think one thing we should probably just address, at least briefly, is I'm sure you both at least had a look at the the report of the Royal Commission in New Zealand into the mass murder that happened there, the terrorist attack uh, that came out. I guess it was just a couple of weeks ago, and. There were lots of interesting things in there. I mean, one was that he said that he started thinking politically when he was around 11 or 12, like in 2002. So in other words, at the height of you know, the kind of clash of civilizations rhetoric globally, but also at the height in Australia of a sort of racial panic around refugees and this bellicose uh, kind of commitment to fighting the war on terror with the United States. And the, the Royal Commission report doesn't doesn't specify all of that, but that's that's what was going on in 2002. And that was mainstream. And that's obviously, his manifesto is an extremist document and it's full of references to the far right, to, to, to Anders Breivik, to David Lane, to the doctrines of contempor- contemporary white power movements. But there's also a lot of stuff in there that's just pretty regulation stuff on the right. I mean, I, I just wrote something. So Chip Belay is retiring, uh, is another momentous event this year, and he's there's a fair shrift being put together for him, and I just wrote something on that, and I looked at the, the Great Replacement kind of stuff as an example of right-wing populism and as something which has a history going back to the 19th century at least. And it's, it's striking when you look at it in, in how many places, in how many large mainstream platforms ideas of white genocide and white demographic replacement have been articulated, you know, in the Daily Telegraph, on Andrew Bolt's show, in his columns. It's it's kind of that idea has really returned to the mainstream and it was the mainstream from, you know, the, the 1880s to the, the sort of the end of the Second World War in Australia. And we had this, this kind of brief period of official, I guess, anti-fascism and official multiculturalism, and now it just seems to be back. And anyway, I mean, the thing about 2020 or 2019 coming into 2020, I mean, New Zealand did this Royal Commission about about this whole incident. There has, to me, and look, correct me if I'm wrong, I just feel like there's been absolutely no reckoning at all in Australia with with the fact that this guy was an Australian who whose formative political experiences happened in Australia in relatively recent history, who went and committed a racist atrocity in the belief that, I don't know, the Jews or whoever were orchestrating the replacement of the white race in every white country. Yes, there was a lot of engagement with ideas that you can easily label as extremists, but but those ideas just are not so far from what is 
regarded as kind of legitimate con- forms of conservative argument in Australia and elsewhere. I, I just don't feel like there was any any reckoning with that what whatsoever. I mean, am I am I wrong? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so that's stunning to me. I guess that that we have have not given all of the things that have happened that we just have not thrashed that out in some way. Like the Australians haven't thrashed it out. I mean, I'm not saying Americans have either with, with Patrick Crucius and Robert Bowers and all of the other people who, who did these awful things. I don't think there's been an adequate conversation here either, but it's better than Australia. I think it's got to do with the media landscape in Australia to a large extent because it just hasn't I, – I, I don't feel like it's happened there to, to any great extent at all. I mean, my impression of the impact upon Australian media and reportage following the publication of the report was it had relatively little impact. It wasn't considered especially important and the kinds of issues that you've raised regarding, you know, his political formation as a young person, the ways in which those sorts of forms of political rhetoric entered into his consciousness and were absorbed as a common sense approach to the world, you know, arguably were given particularly vigorous expression years later. But no, I I think there's, I mean, I, I guess I wonder to what extent is this fact attributable to the fact that in many ways his action was the logical culmination of a particular train of thought? which is still regularly engaged in. So I think the main task of those who are responsible for promoting such doctrines is to place as much distance between themselves and him as possible. And the easiest way to do that is to declare him, you know, uh, psychotic or, you know, in other ways exceptional rather than arguably one of the, a culmination of other forms of rhetoric and practice that are deeply embedded not only in Australian society but in uh, state practice. And it also, I mean, in this context brought to mind, if you look at, you know, the True Blue Crew, which he praised in his, some of his uh, Facebook postings, when they had their event in Coburg in Melbourne in 2016, it was framed in terms of expressing support for government policy on among other things, government policy on asylum seekers and refugees. And I had some, well, I obviously reject their kind of politics and, and uh, logic, but it had some kind of sense. Really? Some, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you, know, I, I, you know, on occasion I feel compelled to uh, distinguish my, my views from theirs. But um, in some ways what they, one of their complaints was, and it was legitimate, is if the government is able to treat these categories of person like shit, you know, to throw them in prison, to torture them, to deny them their rights, why can't we? <laughs> That's kind of like, um, you know, why should the government have all the fun? Yeah. And on some level, I mean, the, the, you know, it, it's a logical argument, even though I object the grounds upon which it's made. Mm. It kind of makes sense. And I think, but I think that, that is the kind of sentiment, at least, that informs a lot of the, to the extent that these ideas have a popular base. That's often what animates people. It's kind of like, well, you know, we look around the world, asylum seekers, refugees, other categories of person are not just depicted as being lesser, but treated as such by the state I'm- through law. And it's kind of like, why can't we, you know? 
On that topic, I mean, I was disturbed when, you know, video emerged, I guess, of the the war crimes committed by Australian Special Forces soldiers in Afghanistan, which I obviously saw after I saw the video for Christchurch. I I was disturbed by the extent to which that footage was reminiscent of what happened in Christchurch. I mean, the, the... you know, I, so, some of it's an accident of that's just how GoPro-type cameras work. That's just how body cameras work, and, and that's the kind of perspective that they frame. But obviously also what was going on, just this kind of wanton slaughter of, of, of Muslims for, for no other reason except that, that, <laughs> that they're predetermined sort of enemies of the nation or whatever, uh, or the West, better, whiteness. That link, I guess, between state policy or what, what, how, how state policy is interpreted and carried out on the ground. And yeah, this kind of vigilantism whose spirit you're just describing is, is just, it, it just seems so obvious that, that there's a link there to me, but somehow that conversation just never, never happens. I don't know. If- how and where it would kind of happen, certainly not in the largest and most influential, you know, media outlets in Australia who are absolutely committed to denying that racism exists in Australia at the same time that they they kind of promote it. So I, I don't know. That's also extremely cheerful, but it's just in, in relation to Australia but and, and to the world because, because Tarrant, has, Tarrant has already been cited you know, in the manifestos of two two other mass murderers, right? I mean, he's a kind of influential and will remain an influential figure within those movements for the foreseeable future uh, and that the action he took is absolutely valorised by, you know, I've seen the base chats where, you know, the news kind of lands, uh, you know, they... they are ecstatic and um, full of admiration and negatively compare subsequent people who do similar things subsequently to him. How does none of that, let, let me put it another way. I have seen, you know, even among kind of people who are probably like on the centre right in Australia, but certainly among lots of people to the left of them, this kind of a, a, a sort of undertone of self-congratulation when they're talking about politics in the United States, which admittedly have been world historically <laughs> bad, uh, terrible. And, you know, the Trump, uh, the Trump administration was uh, an extremely dangerous period of time, not only for people in the United States, but for people around the world. One thing about the Trump administration is that they, Trump himself, held up Australia as a model of what, in his mind, a good immigration and refugee policy could be. I mean, he tweeted out one of Border Force's slides about, you know, which were which were notionally addressed to asylum seekers, like, you'll never be able to live in Australia. I, I forget the exact wording, but, you know, it's on his Twitter feed. He's like, you know, why can't we do this? Uh, he also wanted to institute a points-based, kind of merit-based, as they call it, immigration system like Australia has, which, you know, and he, did, he wasn't able to get to those points. And I would say that since Federation and before, Australia has offered kind of models of racist state policy that others have have taken as a model. 
and and especially recently, there's never any kind of reckoning with the fact that a refugee policy, a, a policy of mandatory detention that Trump couldn't actually quite make stick in a lot of the ways that he wanted to, is kind of a, just a bipartisan reality in Australia. There's never any kind of examination of that, and and there's there's I I don't think there'll ever really be a proper consideration of the Tarrant thing either. I mean, I can bang on about it, but like, you know, (laughs) that's not really probably terribly effective in terms of moving the conversation to a point where people really do some introspection about that and really think about, it's not even the ideas because, you know, the ideas are just, (laughs) the ideas are not complicated and they're not, they're, you know, they're not kind of worth considering. It's more a, a kind of affective sort of orientation to the world, this idea of the kind of clash of civilizations of a Manichaean world where, you know, Muslims are the enemy. Like, where did that kid pick that up from in 2002? Everywhere, everywhere in the Australian media, that was, that was, that was the presentation of, of the situation. So I don't, I don't know if there's ever going to be a moment where people reflect on that. I, I, I guess probably not. Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> that's okay. It's tradition. <laughs> yep, 2020. Uh, I'm glad it's over. Yeah, hopefully we can get a jab at you and get you back out there soon. Yeah, I hope so. You know, we'll see. There's no timetable or anything here, of course, and there are already problems with the distribution of stuff. But we'll see what happens. You know, I've, I've found other ways to kind of report on things from home a little bit uh, this year, so that's been good. But And I'm actually... I've actually been away from the news stuff while I'm trying to get some longer things done at the moment. Oh. Yeah, next next year I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be back into it. Yeah, no, I would love to. I'd love to just drive somewhere. You know, that'd be nice. Well, good luck with everything. Stay safe, and we'll catch you next year. Yeah, you too, fellas. Uh, thanks again. Yeah, I'll talk to you in 2021.
Let's Maintain the Rage. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join our first meeting of 2021 online on Thursday the 14th of January at 6.30pm. Become actively involved in ongoing campaigns to prevent more Aboriginal deaths in custody. It's an opportunity to learn, ask questions, offer skills and have a discussion. Join our team in working with families of Aboriginal people who have died in custody in their fight for justice. Message Ishta Melbourne Facebook with your email and we'll send through an invitation to join the online discussion. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.